Welcome to the Medical Alley Association's podcast. Today, we begin a special series entitled Race and Heart Disease in America. In partnership with the Association of Black Cardiologists and the Preventative Cardiovascular Nurses Association, we are bringing you a three-part series that will shine a spotlight on the reality of current health disparities and identify ways we can create more equitable healthcare solutions. Part one and two are podcast conversations that will culminate in a live webinar on Wednesday, February 9th from 12 to 1.15 p.m. Central Time. My name is Gabriella Spence, Federal Policy and Advocacy Manager at the Medical Alley Association, and I will be serving as moderator for this series. Joining me for this first installment are Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand, Gerald S. Berenson Endowed Chair in Preventative Cardiology and Professor of Medicine at Tulane University School of Medicine, and Dr. Yvonne Commodore Menza, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing and Public Health and the Center for Health Equity. Welcome, Dr. Ferdinand and Dr. Commodore Menza. It is an honor to talk with and learn from you today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really wonderful to have you. Um, I want to start with a little history lesson uh, because it plays a critical role in our future trajectory. In our previous conversations, you both identified the civil rights movement era as a starting point of sorts for racial inequality in healthcare in the United States. And Dr. Ferdinand, I, I want to start with you. Can you expand on why the starting point was chosen? I think we all know the starting point was much earlier on, but you selected this as a starting point for this conversation. Tell us about um, your own experience, maybe how the legislation at the time didn't create the positive impact it intended and how that rippled outwards to where we are today. Well, thank you for this opportunity to discuss what I think is an important issue for all Americans. If you look at our history, in the mid-60s, we saw an improvement in social programs. There was the civil rights movement with voting rights in the mid-60s. And we know that health, life expectancy, and overall care has improved for all Americans over the last 100 years. But if you look at the data, there still is a mortality gap, a white-black death gap. And this is real data. You can get it from the uh, CDC or other major health organizations where you have shortened life expectancy in Black Americans. It's mainly driven by the things that we're going to discuss today, cardiovascular disease, specifically hypertension, diabetes, obesity, especially in Black females premature myocardial infarction, heart failure, stroke, chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease, and cardiovascular death. So one of the more important things that we need to recognize is that, yes, we've made progress, especially in social accommodations and the ability to go to hotels and eat at restaurants, but we have a long way to go to reach health equity. Yeah, I completely agree. Thank you for setting the table. Uh, Dr. Commodore Menza, want to share your perspective on this as a starting point uh, and maybe talking a little bit about the health com- outcomes and um, maybe your own experience. I remember you mentioning you immigrated to the U.S. in college. Um, so I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, understanding the healthcare system through your eyes. Uh, what was that like? Um, what did you experience? Thank you so much for having me as Dr. Ferdinand said earlier, the inequalities that we have in our healthcare system were built from the beginning. And although we can pinpoint the beginning of slavery to 
about um, 1619, where African people were forcefully uprooted from the African continent. I think we can all admit that centuries later, uh, we've made some progress in eliminating racist laws that prevented Black people from getting health care. But we still have a long way to go as the legacy of slavery still shadows our U.S. healthcare system. So as you said earlier, Gabriella, I was born in Ghana, West Africa, and moved to the U.S. in, in 2004. And in college, I met people from all over the world. But what struck me as a Black African was that uh, my skin color would be used as somewhat of a proxy for my culture and race. And I had to embrace my blackness and the labeling that came with it. And I learned that there are stereotypes that are ascribed to black people and assumptions that are made about their potential. And I've personally had healthcare experiences where my concerns were dismissed. And I would say the most memorable for me um, was a surgical procedure I had years ago where I woke up with eight incisions instead of three. And when I questioned the clinician who was in charge of my care, his response to me was, you'll live. So as an African from Africa in America, I have also experienced firsthand racial bias in our healthcare system where people are dismissed and their concerns are not taken seriously. I can feel the blood drain from my face hearing you share that. Thank you for that personal anecdote. I think it's important to note I, as a white woman, have lived an incredibly privileged life. So experiencing something like that is completely out of what I have experienced as the norm. And I think it's really important hearing that story. Dr. Ferdinand, I know you could you could fill a million podcasts worth of your stories and experiences, but maybe share with our listeners the impact you've seen um, living through Katrina and you know how this your perspective on the civil unrest we're seeing today as it relates to uh, how patients of color are receiving care. Yes. Well, I've been practicing medicine for several decades, but my roots are as a child of the Lower Ninth Ward, that area in New Orleans that most of you know from Katrina, which was most heavily damaged. If you look at Katrina, which was August 29, 2005, where you lived had a profound impact on whether or not you were able to survive the flood that came after the storm. The story that most people are unaware of is that when I was a child in 1965, we actually had a similar flood. Yes, the same neighborhood, the same levees broke. And for two to three days, my family sat on the roof, no food, no water. I saw floating bodies. My grandfather died next door. So I have been aware since childhood of the impact of living in a situation where your environment affects your actual survival. I think it's important for us to recognize that in certain areas, you don't have easy access to healthy foods, fresh fruits, vegetables, lean sources of protein. So you tell the patient, eat the DASH diet, but it's very expensive, it's very hard, and for many, it's bus rides, uh, borrowed rides from their family or friends in order to find an area. And oftentimes the food may be expensive. You tell the person that they should do aerobic activity, 90 to 150 minutes 
a week. But many of the older persons in some disadvantaged neighborhoods are actually afraid to go outside because of the fear of crime. And they may stay inside all day, every day, other than going to church. You tell the patient that they should see their doctor or see their advanced nurse practitioner on a regular basis. But they may not have an easy identifiable source of care. And even when they go to that source of care, they may get the perception that they're just another number. So there are a lot of social determinants of health. That's the catch term where people work, live, play, and pray that have a profound impact on health. And it's just not simply because the patients don't want to do right or they don't adhere to our care or they don't have health literacy and can't understand the structural inequities that lead to adverse outcomes. I wonder if we can dive a little bit deeper on that social determinants of health piece and maybe the role socioeconomic status plays in healthcare. And again, not just as um, a patient receiving care, but as providers delivering care. And Dr. Ferdinand, you recently published an article article with the Mayo Clinic titled Cardiovascular Disparities Up South, the Intersection of Geography, Social Determinants, and Race. Uh, we'll provide the link for our listeners because it's got um, an immense amount of helpful knowledge, background, and impact that I think uh, people would appreciate no matter what their um, job title or field. Um, and I, I also want to note kind of bringing it home to Minnesota, uh, where Medical Alley is based. Um, you mentioned in um, in your report, a public report that found 37.4% of Minneapolis Black residents, as compared with 10.1% in white residents, lived in poverty, experiencing limited affordable housing. Can you give us a Cliff Notes version of your article? I promise, again, we'll link it so other people can read it, but give us some of those takeaways as they relate to the socioeconomic status. Well, I appreciate you mentioning the article. It does have in it some of my personal aspects of how I see the social determinants of health and geography. I coined the term up south because I'm down south, where the Mississippi is a large, muddy, turbulent river. But if you go to Minneapolis, it's a little stream. I've actually been to Minneapolis and driven over it. And my host says, there's the Mississippi River. And I'm looking, where's the river? But the point that I was trying to make is that as persons migrated from the Deep South, from the Gulf South, from the Mississippi River Valley, seeking better health care, more progressive politics, and better overall life for their family, many times it was a dream that was not met. And a lot of it has to do with some structural inequities in terms of housing, the type of employment and reimbursement for services that are available. And we now know even to some extent, extending to law enforcement, where persons who sought this dream were not able to manifest this dream. It was specifically related to some of the work that one of the leading ABC members, the Princess Brewer, is doing in identifying the disparate degree of cardiovascular risk factors and poor control in the population in Minnesota. The point that I was making is that when you do analyses of where people work, live, and play, it's not just simple whether or not they're in the West or the North or the East or the South. It's the environment wherever it be. I think what struck me about that article was 
how impactful where you come from, how the impact that your birth location has or where you grew up has on your future um, health outcomes. And I, that's just not something I'd ever considered or thought of. So I appreciate you really bringing that to light. Um, Dr. Commodore Menza, I want to call out an incredibly helpful webinar you did with Johns Hopkins last year, uh, taking an incredibly deep dive on hypertension. I learned a lot. Um, and I, I, again, will link that for our listeners, but I wonder if you can maybe share some of your takeaways. I recall you highlighting, um, again, that race and location factor heavily in a hypertension diagnosis. Maybe you can share a few more of those insights. Sure, I'm happy to. I think what you just alluded to is that a person's zip code is a better predictor or determinant of their health outcomes than their genetic code. And um, this is unfortunate because we find ourselves in a society that has abundant resources. And so using Baltimore as an example, there are neighborhoods that are just a mere sort of six miles apart that are worlds apart in terms of life expectancy. So you have one neighborhood where very few people have a full education. The median household income is about $30,000. And you have another neighborhood about six miles apart where income is about five times that of the other neighborhood. So one of the things Dr. Ferdinand mentioned earlier was the black-white mortality gap. But we also know that there is a black-white wealth gap. So why do we care about wealth? So we know that you know, wealth is a sum of resources that are available to a household. So your income matters, but accumulated wealth from the past makes a difference. And it's a safety net that keeps people from being derailed by temporary setbacks or loss of income or loss of employment. And in the U.S., we know that the median net worth of a typical white family is almost 10 times greater than that of a Black family. And the Brookings Institute actually estimates that the net worth of Black people declined um, more than 44% from 20, 2007 to 2013. And for white families, it only declined about 26 0.1%. And in fact, the ratio of white family wealth, wealth to black family wealth is higher today than at the start of the century. So these statistics are startling, but these differences that we see in socioeconomic status can be tied back to you know, the inception of, of this country. And um, one of the things we also talk about is that socioeconomic status matters, but we know that African-American women, for instance, are three to four times more likely to die than white women in childbirth. And even when a black woman has an advanced degree, she's more likely to still lose her baby than a white woman with a lower level of education. So I think the point here to hone in on is that socioeconomic status or social determinants may explain some of these disparities but even when you account for these social differences or socioeconomic status differences, we still see worse outcomes for Black people in the U.S. Dr. Commodore Mensa, may I amplify those comments somewhat? I think you're absolutely correct. 
Uh, one of the things that I cherish is the fact that I have an endowed chair named after Gerald S. Berenson. The late Dr. Berenson identified in early childhood increases in blood pressure, lipids, glucose. He also had access to autopsies in a biracial town called Boogaloosa. It's on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain, the big lake that's just north of the city of New Orleans. And what he suggested is that although we as adult clinicians look to these risk factors and these diseases and give them a name, heart attack, stroke, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, but that these processes actually start in childhood and early adolescence. So one of the things that I think we need to do is what's called primordial prevention. That's even before the person has manifested a risk factor, and that might start with kids. The sources of these disparities are woven into the healthcare delivery system in terms of having an identifiable source of care, the geographic availability of primary care, the appropriate referral to specialists, the ability to pay for newer medications and newer devices. If you look at, for instance, devices such as Tavar, the MitraClip, there are huge disparities on how those are delivered, even within an area where you should expect there would be geographic availability. Black patients with the same degree of disease have these more advanced therapies that's applied. And then finally, let's be real. We know that there's bias. It may be implicit bias, meaning that the person may not be aware of it. Clinical uncertainty and disparities on how evidence-based medicine, guideline-directed medical therapy is applied across populations. And this could be at some of the best academic centers in the United States. When you look within their health registries, their electronic health systems, you have less application of statins, less application of advanced interventions, less goal attainment for blood pressure. So we have some real problems that we need to address. If we don't address these, then we will not be a just society, a just society would not allow these health disparities to persist. I'm so glad you um, brought that up. And thank you both um, for, thank you both for that perspective. Um, I read recently that uh, you mentioned an electronic health record, Dr. Ferdinand. I read that um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the statistics and I'll try and find it later, but uh, a study recently, recently showed that uh, a patient of color's Tart is more likely to have negative comments written on it, and that carries through their healthcare journey uh, than their white counterparts. And that is, I mean, staggeringly discouraging, especially when you factor in usage of words like um, aggressive or difficult. That paints an incredibly negative picture. And I'm sure we could um, do a whole nother series on something like that. But I do want to talk about. Um, DEI efforts, you know, culturally competent care training. You're seeing a massive amount of new hires for diversity and inclusion officers, trying to train not just um, healthcare practitioners but um, corporations as well. You know, what from both of your perspectives, what works, what doesn't? Have you both undergone training like this at your, you know, at your employers? What was your experience? Tell me a little bit about them. Well, I've done the training. I do think it's a step forward, but it would be somewhat superficial because we still have within the healthcare delivery system these inequities in terms of insurance, the type of insurance, 
the identifiable sources of primary care, the appropriate use of evidence-based medicine. And to some extent, we're going to have to really look at those structural inequities in order to address the disparities. You're not going to be able to just talk your way out of it. I often say that being nice to the patient and using the correct terminology, that's good. That's, a, that's an important step. And I agree with you, having demeaning or ugly comments written into a person's chart can haunt that person's care delivery for decades. But that being said, if we're not doing the right thing in terms of universal access to care, appropriate identifiable source of a medical home, appropriate referral to specialists, for instance, heart failure treatment, the cardiologist, once a person has been identified as having that condition, control of diabetes, early identification of chronic kidney disease, interventions for transplant or referral for dialysis before it becomes uh, too late. If we don't do those type of structural changes in how we deliver care, I'm not really moved that simply uh, removing some of the disparaging comments from the health record and the name calling is going to make a huge difference in terms of how people live and die. Dr. Commodore Menzo, what's your perspective on this? And thank you, Gabriella, for uh, raising um, the recent article um, that was published in Health Affairs, uh, which has shown that uh, negative uh, patient descriptors are used in the electronic health record. Thank you so much for finding that for me. I felt so bad. I meant to write it down because it just, it gripped me seeing that. And thank you so much. Please continue. Right. Absolutely. And this is an indication of racial bias in healthcare. And many clinicians um, are embarrassed to um, even admit that it happens. And so essentially they use machine learning to analyze uh, clinician documentation. And they found that compared to white people, uh, black patients had uh, 2.5 times the odds of having at least one negative descriptor in their history and notes. So why does this matter? So as Dr. Ferdinand said, language matters, but what actually happens to the patient when these negative descriptors are used? Are they less likely to be prescribed effective therapy? Are they less likely to receive the education they need to improve their lifestyle? So I think it's important to uh, talk about DEI and culturally competent um, care and training our clinicians and students, but we also need accountability. We need to interrogate our clinical data to identify sources of disparities and health outcomes and address them square squarely. We shouldn't assume that all patients receive equitable health care. We should always um, probe our data to understand where disparities exist in treatment so that we can actually um, work with clinicians to identify and address the sources of these disparities and eliminate um, these preventable disparities in health outcomes. Thank you both. I wish we could do six series of this uh, and just keep the conversation moving. Um, and we covered a lot of ground in our discussion. And I, I want I want to give you both an opportunity to speak directly to our listeners. What would you like them to walk away with? What do you wish more people knew uh, within this incredibly vast, complicated subject matter? And Dr. Ferdinand, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, again, thank you for this opportunity to have this open and honest discussion. 
we celebrate Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech, but what most of us don't recognize, he also said in 1966, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most inhumane. The issues that we have been discussing are important for us as a society to resolve and resolve as soon as possibly and as thoroughly as possibly. We should make sure everyone has access to care and we as clinicians should treat everyone with the best evidence-based medicine we can, regardless of their sex, gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or geography. Thank you. How about you, Dr. Commodore Menza? What would you like our listeners to know? So we know that uh, the systemic nature of uh, racism requires that any solutions that we come up with have to be comprehensive and emphasize the upstream structural or institutional um, factors that contribute to these disparities. I would say that we urgently need targeted policies, and this is an opportunity for clinicians and everyone to be civically engaged to support and advocate for policies that improve socioeconomic opportunities and living conditions. So the social determinants of health that Dr. Ferdinand mentioned earlier, which will hopefully narrow this Black-white wealth gap, the Black-white mortality gap that has existed since the 90s, but persists. And at the foundational level, patients need to know that they are valued and respected. And we can convey this in how we communicate with them, how we work with them to make decisions to improve their health care. Dr. Commodore Menza, you, um, there's no way for you to have known this, but you're setting up the next podcast absolutely beautifully. So I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. Uh, and I want to share my immense gratitude to you both, Dr. Ferdinand, Dr. Commodore Menza. Thank you for joining me. Your impact in this area is palpable. And I am excited to use this fire you've sparked in me to be a better advocate for these issues. So truly, thank you both for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Your continued support allows us to bring you amazing conversations like this one. So if you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing to the Medical Alley podcast and giving us a five-star rating. Join me tomorrow for part two of our series, where I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Merez, Professor of Cardiology and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Northwell Health, and Chloe Villavaso, Clinical Faculty and Clinical Nurse Specialist at Tulane University School of Medicine, Heart and Vascular Institute, to dive deeper into the current realities of health inequities today. We'll see you then.